Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Occupational Therapists in Primary Care. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This is the next in our chats with some of the other members of the primary care team. Yep, and today we're speaking to occupational therapist Kyle Wilson about her career to date. So she fills us in on how occupational therapists are integrating into primary care and the wide range of things that they can do. We'll go through our learning points at the end of the episode as usual, um, but just to say at, at the outset that it's one of those really enlightening chats that made us feel like the role of the occupational therapist should already be part of the primary care team because it's just so far reaching. Absolutely, completely agree. The other thing just to say is that um, Payel is an occupational therapist who is also an advanced clinical practitioner and she's quite senior um, and this isn't something that you need to have done to work as an occupational therapist in primary care and some of the things that she does mention might not be within the remit of an occupational therapist within primary care who hasn't chosen to do the advanced clinical practitioner course and um, we just thought that was worth highlighting before listening for either budding primary care occupational therapists out there or those thinking of bringing one into their PCN. We hope you enjoy. Would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners and just give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Absolutely. Um, my name is Payal Wilson. I'm an advanced clinical practitioner working currently um, with the North Manchester Crisis Response Team. Uh, I have been qualified for, showing my age now, 20 years this year. So I qualified in 2001 from the University of Salford. And I've, my work history has predominantly been in um, neuro and stroke rehab and then in the latter part of my career, um, working more strategically as a therapy lead in Oldham um, Enhanced Intermediate Care Service. Fabulous. So do you want to tell us um, how you kind of decided to become uh, an occupational therapist and, and the training that was involved? Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't really actually know what I wanted to do when I left school. Um, I kind of just jumped into something. So I, I initially secured a place to study speech therapy, speech and language therapy at the University of London, College London. Um, but then really, really, really messed up my A-levels. <laughs> so um, I think I, I discovered other things like the pub. Um, so I, I didn't really, um, didn't get the grades I needed. And actually that time out, um, whilst I tried to, try to redeem myself, uh, was spent predominantly um, doing extra A-levels to kind of boost my points, but also doing various jobs. And one of those jobs was we working in a, an eating disorder clinic. Um, and I actually worked in the kitchens, not, not actually. So we had to do a lot of work with, with the dietitians and with working out food proportions and, um, the calorific kind of contents for each individual patient. But I was exposed initially there to, to the role of the occupational therapist, which actually is very different to what I did for the majority of my career. But it kind of was something I hadn't really heard of. It wasn't something that I had ever been exposed to, um, you know, prior to that. So it, I learned a bit more about that role and it really interested me. Um, and so instead of reapplying to do speech therapy, I actually got a bit more experience and applied to do occupational therapy. Right. So the, the training to become an occupational therapist is a BSc honours degree um, or a degree. And um, I, I trained at the University of Salford uh, back in 1998. Uh, so you do a three year degree. Um, and within that, the, the wonderful thing about occupational therapy degrees is that you're actually the only AHPs to be dual trained. 
So um, our pre-registration training um, consists of both physical and mental health. So we learn about um, both sides as part of our it's dual training, really. And so that is wonderful because, like I said, we're the only HPs to, to come out with, with kind of experience in both areas. Um, so three-year three, three year degree, HCPC obviously um, registered and governed by the Royal College of Occupational Therapists. Mm, that's, that's fascinating, the dual training. Yeah, and not many people know that. So it's it's one of our bragging points <laughs> as, as occupational therapists. Well, do you know we're the only AHP? Um, so that is wonderful because I think you know obviously with nursing you can you can choose to go down the physical health or the mental health route. Um, obviously, physio is very physical health um, orientated. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's one of our selling points. Um, so in terms of primary care, um, what's the role of an occupational therapist in the primary care setting? The difficulty with occupational therapy, I think, is that um, I don't think as occupational therapists, historically, we've been particularly good with advocating the, the OT role. Um, and I think that's got a lot better. And the Royal College of OT has done some wonderful work around really, really um, selling the wonderful skill that OTs have. But I think, you know, obviously, there are different um, professions that have been well known to primary care for a lot longer. So you, your first contact practitioners, you know, physios, musculoskeletal wise, um, you know, have been more recognised, if you like. So it's wonderful that that occupational therapy was added to the list of of um, professions to be considered within the R's roles. Because I personally think OT is a really undervalued resource, and I think that the the skill and work that occupational therapists can do really. can have huge huge benefits to to GP practice in the past obviously occupational therapists have been well known in hospitals um, and in rehabilitation but primary care you know there's a huge role I think for for OTs to work within so yeah I think there's there's lots and lots of, of skills and Recently, I was asked to um, present at the Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership webinar, um, you know, in in, uh, collaboration with Health Education England. And that was a really, really great opportunity to reflect on the skills that OTs can bring to primary care. Um, In my current role, I don't work directly in, in a primary care network, but our our work is very, very closely with GPs and primary care colleagues. Because I know there probably aren't going to be very many OTs that are in primary care at the moment because it is quite a new thing. But do you know of any that are or do you envision what the role might look like? You know, when I was when I was doing that presentation, I was kind of thinking about the areas. And actually, it was very, very straightforward. The main thing about occupational therapy and the reason probably why it's so misunderstood is that occupational therapists work within huge amounts of different settings. And actually, the, the crux of OT is that we use meaningful occupation. So it is a bit wordy, which is why I also think people get confused. But um, we use meaningful occupation um, and we look at how uh, physical and mental dysfunction impacts on a person's activities, everyday activities. So, you know, it is as simple as that. So if someone, we all know that if we have a period, I mean, COVID's taught us this, if anything else, that, you know, if you have a period of time where something impacts on your roles in everyday life, whether that's your role as a runner, whether that's your role as a mother, whether that's your role in, in a specific occupation, if something impacts on your ability to do that, it does affect all different areas. So it can affect you physically, it can affect you emotionally and psychologically, um, and a huge, it has huge impacts on mental health. So occupational therapists basically utilize something called activity analysis. And they break down those everyday or meaningful tasks. So what, what's, say something, so I had someone who was, um, who was used to running and they'd hurt their foot. You're breaking down what different things they can or can't do to get them back on track to do it. 
And likewise, if someone has a stroke, you're working out which parts of their um, cognitive and physical function are affected and and then implementing solutions to kind of enhance and and optimise independence. So within primary care, um, you know, obviously there's lots and lots of different areas that that occupational therapists can can really help. And, And, you know, within our team, our GP referrals tend to be those patients who are a bit off their feet or, um, you know, their family or carers have noticed they're a little bit more confused. And actually, they're the patients that, you know, the GPs have obviously ruled out any underlying causes that, that could be causing that. So infections or, you know, um, thyroid problems or anything, you know, that could be impacting on, on that. Um, and then coming to us to kind of look at the other wider kind of factors that could be impacting on that. So we'll utilize activity analysis and then we can propose things like putting equipment in place, adapting people's environments and really working out why is that person confused? Is it because they are socially isolated? Is it because they're in pain? Is it because they're limited by barriers within their environment? Um, so functional assessment, you know, looking at how someone is able to, to manage personal care, washing and dressing. Do they need carers? What is it? Why, why is it that they can't do what they usually do? And they kind of break that task down, look at what's causing it and then propose things to kind of make that better, get that patient as independent as possible. Um, so functional assessment's a huge one. Yeah. I think, um, other areas that OTs really, really will shine in are things like falls assessments. So falls assessments, we all know the impact of falls on, on, particularly in Manchester, you know, we have, we've done lots of really great work to reduce falls and, and to really help people who are at risk of falling. Um, but we get lots of patients who have fallen. And our job then is is to to look at, yeah, okay, so they've fallen. What do we need to look at? We need to look at their gait, their power, their range of movement, their standing balance. But actually, why are they falling? So, you know, is it because of something functional? Is it, again, because of, of the way that they're walking? Is it because their furniture's too low? Is it something cognitively? Is it something to do with higher executive function, you know, with their sequencing and planning? And we had a really good case study of a lady who the GP was like, I just don't get it. She She's falling and falling. She's had, I think she'd had um, seven falls and they'd ruled out acute. She'd been into hospital. They'd ruled out everything. They'd done a really comprehensive assessment. Um, and it was a really, really good illustration of, of the OT role within falls because we, we, we sat down with her and we, we did a, a, you know, basic functional assessment. And whilst we were there, she was like, oh, I, I always seem to fall in the kitchen. It's the kitchen that is causing the problem. So we got her in there. We said, come on, let's, let's make a cup of tea. As, as all OTs say, <laughs> there is a reason for that. And, um, she get, went into the kitchen. And so automatically as an OT, we don't just like watching people make cups of tea. There is a huge amount of analysis that goes into that task. So like I said earlier, you're breaking down that task into its components. So that might be cognitive. So to make a cup of tea, you need to have memory recall. You need to have higher executive function in terms of sequencing and planning and organizing your task. You have to have some element of standing or sitting balance to be able to do it safely, dynamic and static. You have to have um, awareness of different objects and what their uses are. You know, so there's huge amounts of things that go into that analysis. So, you know, when we took her in the kitchen, she was able to stand really well. She she got everything ready to do the task. She started making up a tea and then she opened the cupboard, which was above her head and her her dynamic balance completely went off and she was falling backwards. And it was as simple as that, as being able to understand that actually it was something environmental that we could really easily sort out that reduced her risk of falls going forward. 
So dynamic balance being like your balance as you're moving around. As you're moving around, yeah. So when you're doing something, you move out for your base support and you're moving across. And that obviously requires a different type of balance compared to when you're just standing still. Okay. Yeah, that's really, that's a great one. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like the lights were off. Or something. No, 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 no. Oh yeah, OTs, OTs always get mocked though for, for, I remember when I worked at Withenshaw Hospital and the, the consultant was like, oh, off for a brew again. And it was like, oh, let's have the basket weaving jokes as well. Uh, but actually task analysis within OTs is one of the, the core skills and, and you can apply that to, to any different area. Um, you know, within learning disabilities, within mental health, within physical health. And that is how we basically analyse occupations to work out what to do. I can see how that would be useful um, sat within primary care, because I can think of a lot of examples of patients that that kind of assessment probably would have been really, really useful for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we do get a lot of people who we, we don't know what's wrong. You know, they are a bit off their feet. They're just not quite themselves. And the other thing, obviously, occupational therapists do then in conjunction with that is that they can carry out the cognitive and memory screening assessments to work out if it's it's anything to do with, with kind of memory recall and, like I said, higher functioning um, processes. Uh, uh, we work really closely with the GPs at North Manchester. We, we, we conduct um, standardised assessment so the mocker and the mini ace um it's part of our dementia screening so if patients are um, showing risk factors for for a, an underlying dementia what we do is we work with the gps will refer to us to do those standardized assessments um and also to to kind of contribute to long-term planning and um and informing those kind of ongoing assessments so we do the memory assessments and the capacity assessment, the GPs do the bloods to rule out any infections, anything else that can be contributing to, you know, ongoing memory problems. And then those get sent together to the memory clinic for further assessments to actually ascertain that diagnosis. Wow. So just for a patient who you suspect of having dementia and there's capacity issues for, yeah. you're kind of providing all of that service and then there's the bloods on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it just means that patients can access to get those diagnoses quickly. Yeah, I was just thinking of that, that, that time where you see somebody where it's that kind of nearly social admission, they're not safe at home. And actually, isn't it a shame that we've missed that time before that? But yeah, just thinking about easier access and quicker referrals being so key. Absolutely. And especially with frailty, you know, um, I think occupational therapists are absolutely primary people to be involved in in the assessment of the frail adult. And, you know, especially because, you know, it's the bread and butter of OT. I said this in the webinar, you know, we are able to to holistically look at a patient and how their resilience is being affected by that physical and mental health kind of dysfunction. Um, but also not only just assessing and managing frailty, but identifying it early so that we can really mac- maximise occupational performance and pick up proactively, pick up on those patients that are high risk of long term placement um, and get in there before they kind of get to a level where where that is then problematic and they have to be placed. Fabulous. Yeah. In terms of your career at the moment, I mean, those are brilliant illustrations of what, what you do at the moment. I just wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more about that in terms of your role is it the crisis response team that you're in yeah so i work for the north manchester very proudly work for the the north manchester crisis response team and we are a team um, that is advanced practice led 
Um, obviously, we work very closely with um, our GP colleagues and hospital consultants and, and go to doc to kind of um, manage patients who are acutely unwell uh, within the community. So we are an integrated health and social care team. We're incredibly lucky that we have occupational therapists, physios, we have social workers, pharmacists, advanced practitioners, obviously assistant practitioners and senior support workers. And we basically... Um, try and prevent those very unnecessary hospital emissions. But North Manchester is, is lucky because we do have um, a very robust community offer. So we are we very rarely have to place people in respite or step them up, you know, unnecessarily. We can manage, we can do ECGs, we can do bloods, we can interpret those bloods, we can, you know, we've got prescribers as part of our team. So we can really support the GPs um, and particularly through COVID, you know, we've we've had, it's been a huge challenge to our service because um we have been uh, you know patient facing the entire time so yeah i'm lucky that i work within a really really good supportive team and we have we make a huge difference to the patients we we work with great so we thought it might be worthwhile um talking a little bit about kind of that advanced clinical practitioner role and sort of asking you to briefly outline the benefits of having an OT in an advanced clinical practitioner role, because I think we're probably more used to knowing about nurses. Absolutely. And I'm very, very proud to be able to say, I, I, well, this has taken me a long time to say this, because I did my MSc in advanced practice. Uh, I did it in 2015 to 2017, and it was probably the most challenging, difficult thing, um, you know, but it has equipped me with the most amazing tools to be able to really, really provide a robust, holistic service to the patients that I see. Historically, advanced practice was a very, it was a very, a very natural extension of the nursing role. So, you know, nurses, very experienced nurses would then extend those skills to be able to, to clinically assess or examine patients and then also request diagnostics, interpret the diagnostics and then formulate a, a clinical management plan. So then, you know, more physios were, were kind of being seen in those those positions. And now we are seeing, I mean, I'm really proud to say that I, I'm an occupational therapist in an advanced practice role because I can go and see someone who's fallen and I can see them and assess them from a functional perspective. But I can also go and do a full cranial nerve assessment. I can assess their tone, power and reflexes. I can do some bloods to rule out infection if I'm worried about it. I can listen to someone's chest, you know, and I can do that in a competent manner. So our falls pathway at North Manchester crisis response is that if a patient falls, normally they have to have a pharmacy review, a therapy assessment and an advanced practice assessment. And that's obviously in line with, with, um, with, with guidance and best practice. So as an OT working in an advanced practice role, we are able to do the full clinical assessment and also um, assess them from a functional perspective. Fabulous. Um, so you've already given us a few that have been fabulous. Have you got another example for us that might illustrate the OT role uh, even further? So in North Manchester, we have quite a high level of uh, social economic poverty. We've got a lot of patients who struggle with health literacy and we have a very high population who are who suffer from COPD. There was this one lady that I went to see and she was ha- having an exacerbation of her COPD. Now, our, a majority of our referrals come from the ambulance service um, and GPs, but an ambulance uh, crew were, were asked to, to see this lady because she, she had presented with shortness of breath. And when I went out to see her, yeah, she was, she was exacerbating. It was, it was very clear. Her sats were slightly reduced. She had a, a productive cough. It was all your typical symptoms. So I was able to do that assessment to get a baseline from that 
episode of care. Um, we were able to issue her with, with antibiotics and steroids that she needed. And we monitored her then for the next three days. But obviously, I, I wasn't just going in to assess her breathlessness. Actually, so what I was able to do was able to then assess her function as well. So we were able to get her equipment. She, she could barely walk. And normally, she could go upstairs. So we were able to give her a nebulizer. We were able to give her some education around her uh, respiratory function, her breathing techniques. We assessed her inhaler technique. But most importantly, we were able to say, right, okay, you're, you live on your own. How are we going to do this? How are you going to manage things like your personal care and getting to the toilet in time? So we, we've got a store of equipment. We were able to get her a glide about commode. So she had that with brakes on right by the side of her. Um, just for the few days while she was just letting the antibiotics and steroids kick in. And then obviously we would just then got the the home pathway therapists that do intermediate care at home to then go in and work on her exercise tolerance and build her back up. And we also got the community respiratory service to follow her up in a week. So for my role as a therapist, yes, I did go in there and I was managing the exacerbation. However, I was also going, you know what? You, you are, you really are struggling with your breathing. We want to keep you at home. How are we going to be able to do this safely? So that I think really illustrate how an advanced practitioner who's an OT by background can kind of give that, that little difference. Is it worth maybe um, talking about there being any special requirements for occupational therapists to work in primary care in these new additional roles? Because I know that the physios had to have had experience and things. Is there anything that you know about for OTs? As my understanding, and I could be wrong, is that I think it's a band seven level. So you've obviously got that because a lot of the roles will be in primary care will be isolated in the way that you, you may be the only OT within that GP practice. Um, and I think from that respect, it's about having that really, um, that breadth of experience to be able to, to kind of manage different situations, but also to be able to seek out those opportunities to make sure that you maintain that professional identity and clinical supervision. And that doesn't necessarily have to be with an OT. You could have professional supervision with you, you know, the practice nurse at the, the GP surgery, but it's about maintaining those professional links. So keeping up to date with evidence-based practice and the right outcome measures and making sure that you are responsible for kind of measuring how successful your intervention is. Yeah, that's grand. And we'll, we can link to the, um, the additional roles guidance as well. So um, we've got uh, a few quick fire questions next that keep getting asked about the R's rules, the additional rules, reimbursement scheme rules. So can OTs prescribe in primary care? Not at the moment. We are working on it. Um, there's a big project. Uh, but basically, occupational therapists at the moment cannot prescribe because um, advanced practice is, um, is obviously not a governed uh, you know, level of practice. So you're bound by your professional responsibilities for whichever professional body you, you belong to. So the Royal College of OT are now working on putting a case together. They, they're they quite far on, but COVID's again, pull that back to allow occupational therapists, not only in advanced positions, but specialist occupational therapists to be able to, to conduct the non-medical prescribing. Um, you mentioned about supervision, um, but how much clinical supervision do occupational therapists require in primary care and who can do it? So uh, in terms of how often, I think that's, you know, it's very, very much dependent on that individual and their level of expertise. But normally I'd say, you know, once a month, I think is is good for more junior members of staff or people in new roles. And then kind of every every six weeks at least to have that 
formal supervision because don't forget supervision can be also conducted informally so you know chats with your colleagues over a coffee is I think equally important I I really rely on that informal supervision um, to talk through cases and to get some information Um, I personally have worked in in quite a lot of areas where I'm I haven't been supervised by um, by an occupational therapist even in that role but I've been able to kind of nominate someone who is an occupational therapist to um, clinically supervise me if you like informally or to to you know band around those questions that are specific to OT I've I've done managerial supervision with nurses with physios um, and I've also been been supervised by different professions grand and I guess that kind of links into the next one which was can OTs clinically supervise other clinical specialties in primary care absolutely yeah because it is you know you you've got a, something in common in that you're working in that area so there'll always be things that you might not be able to answer or that you might have to seek advice on but I have no doubt that OTs can definitely um, supervise other professions. So what do you want listeners to take away from the chat today? The key points, I think, is that um, to remember occupational therapists can really um, bring some very valuable skill to to any workforce. But I think particularly with, you know, the patients that we've got in in our communities who are living longer with lots of comorbidities and increased frailty, I think there is a definite um, role for occupational therapists to be really pivotal um, within primary care settings. Do you know, it's really weird because my I went to my GP practice before I did the advanced practice course. And I remember sitting, waiting for to be seen and thinking, do you know what? It'd be really, really good to have OTs in primary care because you wouldn't have to wait for equipment. You could have like a little stock. You could have see the patients who, you know, are falling and provide that equipment for them there and then, you know, and, and also the cognitive assessments. If you've got, you know, a patient seen by a GP and they're like, oh, I'm not quite sure, but actually you've got standardized assessments you know, that that really inform your long-term planning. It just makes sense. Lovely. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. So that was amazing to talk to Pyle. What did you think, Lisa? What are your learning points? Oh, it was just so lovely. I think I say this every single time, but I really like finding out about these different roles. And the occupational therapy one is no different. What I took away was um, kind of the, the very different areas that they can cover yeah um, so there's the obvious one about things like falls assessments and um and kind of what flags in your head when you think of an occupational therapist but it was the bits about um like cognitive assessments that i hadn't quite considered that they could be doing yeah. and also the big bit of work around frailty yeah. um where pile was 100 percent right that that does fit really well into the occupational therapy remit so i think i was really surprised by that what about you yeah, absolutely. I um I was fascinated hearing about her um the dual training because exact for exactly the same reasons I hadn't quite appreciated that they you know that they can f- fulfill so many different roles. So yeah, I was saying to Pyle afterwards that that it feels like when you go on a home visit or you assess a patient that it's always a snapshot of the patient and it's that that kind of consideration that worry about what trajectory they might take in terms of whether they'll get worse or whether they'll get better. Um, whereas I feel like with, with OT that actually they're taking a film, but they're taking a little, they're actually getting that sort of more dynamic picture of the patient in a, in a much more well-rounded way. So yeah, I thought that was really fascinating about just how the depth of, of information that, that an assessment can, with an OT gets. 
yeah the um when i i've just written down cup of tea but um i think like that showcased it really well for me that like i hadn't even thought about all the different parts that are involved with making a cup of tea um and i think that illustrates nicely that just like like that video that you're talking about that film you actually see they they go in and they see a little bit of the patient's life and they can gather so much rich information from it the, um, the other bit that I've written down is just about the occupational therapists in that advanced practitioner role, um, because I hadn't thought of them um, taking on that sort of um, role and doing that extra training. But actually, when Pyle describes it, it makes so much sense because they've got a whole avenue of other experience that a lot of other practitioners don't have um, in terms of their occupational therapy knowledge. And then they can add on that clinical bit. And then you've got this amazing holistic assessment that they can go in and do, which is so good for patients. Um, so yeah, that that was really enlightening to me. Um, so if you have any comments or questions or want to give us any feedback, there's several options. Um, so there's our email address, which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. Or we have a Twitter and our handle is at PCKB podcast. Yep. And we also have a survey, um, which has changed slightly. It's not a survey monkey link anymore, um, but that will be in the episode description as well. It's the exact same survey and it only takes um, a minute or two to fill in if you want to use that way instead. And yeah, like us, share a friend, share a friend, like <laughs> us, share your friends, just share them with each other. <laughs> um, yeah, or um, you can always subscribe or any any kind of feedback is great. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode. 